Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hello everyone, you are listening to the Living the Dream podcast and you are joined with me, Dave, and... John. And we have a very special guest today, uh, which is Liz Humphreys. Liz would probably not be a stranger to listeners of the blog. Liz is a well-known Australian anti-capitalist intellectual and activist. You've got a fancy academic position as well at the moment, don't you, Liz? Holding on by the skin of my teeth. So you write normally at Left Flank, which is probably most known for its uh, anti-politics thesis. But you also have another blog as well, is that correct? I tend to publish my more academic work in draft form on a blog called An Integral State dot something. And we'll we'll link it. Yeah, we'll we'll put it. We'll link it down down below. And people can find you on Twitter, can they? They can find me on Twitter and uh, that's about it. Instagram, but that's just pretty photos. <laughs> don't, don't, don't downplay our pretty photos segment of the audience. It's a, it's a key part of our demographic. And what's your, your Twitter handle, Liz? It's Liz Bess, one word, L-I-Z-B-E-T-H-S. Brilliant. And I'm at with Sober Senses and, John, you're at with John Pacini. Is that right? At, at John underscore Pacini. Ah, just brilliant. diffuse matters. So we've been meaning to get Liz on the show for a while. Um, at some point in time, we might do a special on anti-politics as well. But specifically, we wanted to have a chat to you today because you've just finished um, some pretty groundbreaking PhD research on the Accord, and uh, which is interesting in itself to try to get an understanding of what happened to the class struggle and to the labour movement under the Hawke-Keating ALP government, but also particularly because the 80s are back in, in that there's this debate, I get the impression that there's a debate going on in Australia, particularly amongst people in and around the Labour Party, which are attempting to kind of resurrect a really positive image of the Hawke-Keating period and to use that as... um, a touchstone, I guess, of what an alternative ALP future could be. Am I deluded or do we think this is kind of going on? I Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. It's really lovely. I definitely think that's the case. I think there's a big debate going on within the Labor Party about how to position itself and particularly how to kind of revive itself after a few failed attempts under Rudd and Gillard. Obviously, the Labor Party's in a context of really a collapse of Labourism in Australia and trying to work out how it rebuilds Labourism, if that's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's scratching around for some kind of idealised past and to try and mobilise its factions internally around that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing that really kind of brought... And look, at one level I'm like, uh, the Labor Party, who cares? But I guess... It matters to me as much as that still might maintain to some level an attractive mythology to a certain section of the class, I guess. Um, For me, that's the interest rather than specifically about the machinations within the ALP. 
And the thing that kind of brought this to my attention was a recent kind of debate that took place in The Guardian, of all places, involving two columns uh, by the Guardian columnist Van Batten and one column by Wayne Swan. Did we all have a chance to read those columns? We did indeed. Yes. What do we reckon? What was the argument that was being made? Hmm. Oh, I'll answer that question myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought it was kind of mind-blowing, right? So, like, Van, there's two columns in particular. There's one where the first one written about a month before the other, which was the ALP introduced um, neoliberalism in Australia in the 1980s. Um, However, it could also be the vehicle that does a post-neoliberal future. And the kind of presented this really weird rationale that the reason that the ALP introduced neoliberalism was essentially an end, uh, was because of the end of the Cold War, that the failure of the Soviet model meant that the alternative was some kind of unleashing of markets, then says this kind of generated an element of inequality. However, um, it was really then the conservatives that took over this project and they're the reasons why everything is shit. And the rest of the piece really wanted to celebrate that there was now this vivid, live um, intellectual culture that was going on in the ALP currently. And then like her follow-up piece, like a month later, which was even weirder, made this argument that like the success of the ALP was that they were able to... Who was the leader before Hawke? I've just suddenly forgotten. Hayden. Bill Hayden, Hayden, right? That the ALP machine was able to knife Hayden like just before the election, put Hawke in, and this is why they won. And she was giving this as advice to the British Labour Party, like, um, you know, that they should quickly knife Corbyn and put in someone else and they have a chance. So it was this mixture, I thought, of um, like the ALP is both the, the political project that has the potential for a positive vision and on the other hand, it's got the kind of sense of bastardry and realism that it could win the fight. And then Wayne Swan entered into this debate, which my mind is bizarre. Like, I don't know if former greatest treasurers of the world always write columns <laughs> responding to columnists in The Guardian. Always. Which yeah. basically said, no, the ALP government of Hawke and Keating was not neoliberal. It was this thing called Australian laborism. And Australian laborism is this vision of time. Whatever you want it to be. Well, it was kind of like, it was pretty vague, but it was kind of like, it's pragmatic, it unleashes the market, but through smart policy kind of minimises the negative social impacts and therefore is this unique and celebratory vision. I I didn't mind that aspect of Swan's argument in that I think that is how the ALP has positioned itself historically, that if you look back at the way that um, Whitlam and others uh, argued for the direction of uh, that government, it's very, particularly in when the economic crisis hit and they were driving through tariff cuts and, um, and budget cuts, it was very much like the social program of the ALP has always been dependent on the success of the private sector in a healthy economy. Um, And, you know, it's only through the health of capitalism that we can implement um, progressive social reforms. I thought what was odd was that Swan was basically, and and, and Vanessa Badham's first article was a bit the same, 
50% of it was absolutely correct and 50% of it was completely mad. Um, and it's a good look. I, I sh- it is absolutely clear that the Hawke-Keating government implemented a range of neoliberal policies uh, that can't be considered as anything but fit, fitting within uh, that broad framework of neoliberalism. And he hashes up a, a couple of the standard things. It's not really neoliberal because um, we didn't do everything that neoliberals do. It's not really neoliberal because, um, uh, you know, we introduced Medicare and superannuation. Um, these, these arguments have sort of played out over several decades. And you find that reflected in academic work as well. Um, we can't say it's neoliberal because that would be to say that would be to sacrifice the laborist project. It is what a couple of um, academics, um, Joe Collins and Drew Cottle, argue. It's to to give up the laborist project. What's the labor? Sorry, I've got to interrupt there. What's a laborist project? Well, if there was a laborist project once where there was a mass social base to the Labor Party, it certainly doesn't exist now, mm. which is part of the bizarreness of. Um, the Corbyn article by Badham is the one that I think it most sticks out as I have no idea what set of facts they're trying to gather in order to argue this position. When Hawke was elected, yes, it happened quickly after Hayden fell and they did knife him as she goes over in that article, but it was at a time where there was over 50% density in the trade unions and much stronger links between the Labor Party and the trade union base, and the unions had real roots um, and real social weight in society. To implement the accord and all the policies that came with that, that entire neoliberal turn that happened, it actually took that social weight it needed those those unions and their um, social base in civil society in order to implement it. To think that we can talk about now switching leaders and having the same result is ignorant of the fact that there has been a collapse of mass politics and labourism in both Australia and the UK. Mm. You cannot bring you cannot bring the working class in to use like shorthand with you in the way they could in the early days of the accord the unions had real social weight then and they don't now it's not to say they have none but it's certainly um far diminished but they talk as if these two time periods um are identical Mm. yeah well i I think this i think actually the stuff that you're touching on at this point liz is the thing that is kind of most fascinating for me about this period but also the one that i don't i probably have an opaque understanding of so in the 1970s, you have huge level of union density, that's correct. Is that like relatively militant activity that's going on um, in workplaces? And by the ni- beginning of the 1990s, that's all, that's finished. That- Certainly density drops a lot in the 1990s, but the, act, the implementation of the accord in 1983 by its nature, it is an agreement to suppress wages and industrial activity. Social, that is what social contracts are. They are, you're getting this and there should be no further claims, no mm-hmm. industrial action for any further claims. So it kills off industrial action there and then. Do you, could, um, could you just go over and just for, for my sake and for listeners as well, just to clarify, you know, what was the accord or their multiple accords and what was its kind of key elements? 
Sure. The accord was a form of a social contract and social contracts have historically existed between a government, a trade union movement and business. Now, um, so they're often what, what, they, what people call tripartite, but sometimes they were bipartite. In this case, the accord was between the Australian Labor Party and the Australian trade union movement. And it was an agreement to that the unions would uh, make no claims for wage rises above inflation. And in return for that, the unions and um, the Australian people in general would receive a range of um, social protections and reforms. The, the terms of the original accord were quite broad and quite different to what was implemented. So the original accord was for quite expansionary social policy, an expansion of higher education. Um, you know, there wasn't going to be reductions in tariffs without consultation. The unions were going to sort of be at the centre of um, economic decision-making. And it, you could say the general tenor of the document was quite progressive. Mm. Well, the, the thing that strikes me is so, that, like, this wasn't a cynical ploy that a lot of people signed up, right? Like, we're talking about the Communist Party of Australia supporters, is that correct? And the left in the Labor Party and the trade unions who had this social weight were active participants in the accord. Yeah, the, it was supported by virtually all um, trade unions. There were a few state branches of particular unions that didn't back it mm. and elements of the far left. But we're talking isolated and relatively socially weak organisations and individuals who opposed it. Um, and as you importantly say, the trade unions affiliated to the Labor Party backed it and the Communist Party of Australia unions, particularly the Australian Metal Workers Union, the Building um, Workers Industrial Union, uh, uh, supported the accord. Now, the AMWU or the Amalgamated uh, Manufacturing uh, metals body had different names in this period. Was a really the most militant and the largest union in the seventies and early eighties. And in fact, you're right. The seventies was a lot of industrial action. The two historical peaks of trade union um, strike action occur in the seventies. Then there's another real push in the early eighties by the metal workers, saying that um, the way to try and deal with rising unemployment. Everybody should work less mm. um, and uh, work a 35-hour week and more jobs should be created in the metal industry. And they had a, a really intense strike period in 1981 over that. Um, this really, you know, brought things to a head with the Fraser government. Now, I sort of characterise it as the Fraser government couldn't win. The unions were very strong, but nor did the unions have an outright defeat of Fraser. And into that space, into a sort of what next space, um, came the accord as a way to both deal with the growing anger from certain point, parts of the community about rising industrial action, but also to deal with the exhaustion within the union movement that they'd not been able to win a decisive um, against Fraser. And I think if one thing characterises um, Swan and Badham's articles, it's that they deal with this period and the present period as a level of ideology that we just pick or choose neoliberalism as if there weren't real social forces, recessions, environmental circumstances and a material context that, that these, things have, these, these things take place in. Um, now, you know, Hawke ran on this uh, 
campaign slogan of bringing Australia together. And that really did sort of summarise that after this fractious period of militant industrial action, I'm going to bring everybody together for a sort of um, calm and secure future. Mm. And a lot of unions came on board with that. Particularly, you can, I think sometimes when the left look back at the decision to go with the accord, they see it as bad people um, decided to support it. Not that actually you have these big unions like the Metal Workers Union being absolutely savaged by um, job losses in manufacturing, desperate because they've got growing numbers of unemployed people within their ranks, unemployment benefits are terrible, that these are real, real concerns for that union. They see this as the answer, and I'm not saying that um, it was the answer, but you can see why some people in the trade union movement were looking for some kind of easy solution to a very different, difficult um, financial economic circumstance. That, that's really interesting you say that, Liz, because I'm thinking about the another part of having read some of your work, particularly some forthcoming work potentially, it's very, very interesting to think about the way that pretty much in the 70s the union movement had sought and achieved very significant wage rises, yes. but that, that had not really been able to offset inflation, right? Like So it was actually the exhaustion of the tactic yes. in a way of kind of like strike, strike, big wage rises because it wasn't actually delivering, like you said, it wasn't delivering what people wanted, right? It wasn't delivering yeah. actual yeah. material improvements in people's wealth. And yeah, in people's and I think um, Tom O'Lincoln's book on the Fraser years, I think the, is the one that really sort of focused my thinking about this exhaustion of union strategy. The accord wasn't the only option, but it was the only option on offer. The, the, the far left is, was small and isolated in Australia and the trade unions, the, this, was, this was the dominant, dominant um, uh, proposal. And it, it didn't come out of nowhere, right? There were attempts to ha create an accord um, between Whitlam when he was in government and Hawke when he was leader of the ACTU. And Hawke even tried to negotiate kind of a ceasefire with um, Fraser and got rebuffed by the AMWU in the Fraser years. The AMWU at the same time was really looking overseas and looking around at the social contract in Britain and um, other sort of models of what they would call an alternative economic strategy, socialism through, um, through peaceful agreement between trade unions and, and governments. And so, like, the accord sort of it drops very quickly and as in terms of the form of the document. But you can see how uh, there were efforts within the trade union movement and the Labor Party over several years to, to bring about some kind of social contract. Um, now, of course, the accord that got implemented was a far cry from what was put on paper. And the union leadership really didn't push back very much over... Um, uh, the non-implementation of certain aspects of the accord, including the fact that wages didn't keep pace with inflation. But also the rank and file of the unions were really kept in their place. They also didn't push back at um, the failure of the accord to be implemented. So there were several accords, weren't there, throughout this period as well? Like, And they, there was like a noticeable drop in the level of kind of, of trade union demands 
the acceptance of trade union demands. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Like the accord was meant to deliver wage increases that kept pace with inflation. And that happened without the figures in front of me. That happened for the first sort of, the first accord went for the first two or three years, maybe for, for half that period. But from then on, when things went to the Arbitration Commission, the government, and often with the agreement of the unions, uh, accepted wage rises that were below accord. Sometimes yeah. that was because uh, the government decided that impl- re-implementing Medicare, Medicare after its abolition by the Fraser government was worth a certain amount to workers and therefore their wages um, would, yeah. would be less than inflation. And this happened several times. So it meant the 80s really did see a real suppression of wages um, for, for, for workers, and particularly for the workers in the, the lower deciles, the, the lowest paid. Their wages didn't really recover to the level they were in 1983 until the end of the Hawke government 13 years later. So we're talking like a serious wage suppression and and it being worse for the poorest workers. Now, a lot of, a lot of what um, Swan and um, Badham are trying to argue is that because there were other social gains in the period like superannuation, Medicare, um, government expenditure on other social services, this kind of makes up for the loss in yeah. wages. This has been the main, I guess, crux of the argument between detractors of the accord and supporters of the accord. Um, of course, the accord promised both that wages would keep pace with inflation, but also that certain social protections would be embedded, like increasing um, unemployment benefits and things like that. What did we see in reality? We saw the wage suppression. We saw what usually happens with social contracts, suppression of industrial action. We saw the introduction of universal superannuation, which is a privatised pension which has put enormous pressure on the public pension and shifted risk Mm. of retirement from the government to individuals. And also transformed a section of of wages into mandatory uh, speculative capital, right? Absolutely. And I guess since the 2008 crisis, I see less people trying to defend superannuation as the greatest thing ever and the greatest legacy of the Australian Labor Party and the ACTU because... Uh, you know, lots of ordinary people lost 50% of their super. And if you're already retired, you don't have time to remake that money. Mm. Um, And I think that did expose some of the shift in risk from the government to to households and individuals over that. But we do get the, you know, Medicare is the greatest thing ever. Um, Therefore, tightening our belts and this is the way Kelly talks, we're all in it together you know, it was tough, but we all had to tighten our belts to see Australia through. But um, some people came out the other end much better than others. Because mm. I guess that's a th- there's a lot that you've said there that I find really, really fascinating. So I guess if we think about that the story from the 70s, we're talking about a, a global crisis of capital. And there's lots of different theories about why that, why that why that crisis emerged. But part of the narrative that often gets told is it has something to do with the the post-Second World War deal between labour and capital that 
you'd trade productivity for wages was broken by class insurgency and that wage rises created a profit squeeze, you know, multiple theories about this. Yeah. Was, the, was that reduction in the growth of wages under the Accord effective in relaunching capital accumulation in Australia? In what period? Sorry. So, from in the eight, so when you know in the in the eighties going into the nineties, does the accord work for capital? In my mind, the accord works for capital because the because it suppresses wages. Mm. Now, whether wage push or you know uh, inflation. Uh, wage push inflation is the explanation well, for what happened in the 70s or not, I think is debatable. Clearly, the unions took a bigger slice of the wage profit share um, in the 70s. It went up and down a bit, but there was a period where it, there was a gain. Mm. That makes mm. sense. The Australian labour movement was at its strongest point historically. I think when you think about it from the way that the Labour Party or mainstream economists or even many you know, Keynesian economists think about it, they do see wages as the thing that is malleable in in mm. how you deal with recessions. Mm. And the focus is on what labour can do always, um, whether it's good times or bad times, um, in order to uh, best manage the economy. It's never... Uh, it's never really accepting lower prices or profits. Um, so I think it's clear that once the 80s comes along, there is a real historic break. between. As, and, and this is one of the things that Van Badem gets right in that first article where the graph between productivity and wages tends to track together and the accord severs that. Um, so through and it never recovers. So now we see those two parts of the graphs going off together. Mm. Australian workers are more and more productive all the time, but actually wages have not kept pace with that. The key mm. thing for me though is that social contracts are always about getting the working class to accept, and I, I think Leo Panitch is correct about this, getting the working class to accept that their interests and the national interests are the same thing and that mm. their, their um, commitment to the Australian Labor Party um, is the vehicle in which their, their social force can be mobilised for this particular project. Mm. Now, what tended to happen with social contracts that he analysed in the 1970s is that at a certain point, Labor the labour movement became so frustrated with this wage repression and the repression of industrial action, they push back and break social contracts and he's particularly looking at the British case. The thing is this didn't happen in Australia. As the screws were turned on the working class, there was a little bit of resistance early on from, from very, some very small unions like Dollar Suites, the Mudjambiri yeah. workers, even the early academics union tried to push back and, and, and try and win some of the wage losses that yeah. had happened under the latter years of Fraser. Unemployed movement as well, I think, you know, different unemployed groups opposed the accord. Definitely. But they've very quickly broken. And as mm. you would know from Wollongong, Dave, that mm. that even efforts to sort of fight the steel plan and those other tripartite yeah. exist agreements that existed within the accord framework were really crushed and crushed well. The the I guess the historic problem of the accord is not just 
density went down internationally, which is true. But the suppression of industrial action meant you can't just switch it back on. And so in the latter years of the Accord, when enterprise bargaining was introduced at the urging of the trade union movement, this was not brought in by employers. That's a very different story than I remember being trained in in the left. You know, the enterprise bargaining is this tool of the right. So that's fascinating. Well, it is a tool of the right. The Australian Labor Party was a neoliberal government. Yeah. And mm. I think it, it may be it's not part of the right in that general sense, but, like, it, it, the unions, particularly even the metal workers, were so fed up with the, um, what was happening with the suppression of wages under the Accord that mm. it looked like the Accord would fracture. And rather than do that, they kind of came to this compromise in the form of enterprise bargaining. And that was meant to kind of unleash the power of labour so it could then fight for wage increases. But, of course, the only ones that could fight for it were the strong unions. Historically, the centralised arbitration process had meant the stronger unions' gains would flow on to the rest of the workforce. But the thing about enterprise bargaining is it broke that historic um, process in Australia and meant that... Metal workers and others did make those gains, but the weaker unions didn't. But also the stronger unions were, were, were not as strong as they were 10, 15 years earlier. The economy had changed. There'd been massive retrenchments in manufacturing. And also people just unlearn how to organise. You can't stop industrial action for a decade and turn it back on. Mm. Um, all the delegate structures and workplace organising um, that had built up through the 70s really suffered under the accord in terms of uh, sort of that forgetting, I think, um, uh, of how to organise. Mm. I'm really interested in how the accord kind of functioned as a way as well of sort of, because there's other things that are happening that the Labour government's implementing in the 80s as well in terms of the economic restructurings. So the tariffs thing is one thing, and that was actually started under by um, under the Whitlam government. But then, like things like you know, floating the dollar and other things that come in. And, and how much do you think the accord plays a role in kind of smoothing the way for the privatizations that are happening at the same time? Yeah, I think I guess there's two things to say. Academics have sort of argued this is like. Marxist political economists, what is the relationship between the accord and uh, that wider neoliberal um, process? Tom Bramble and Rick Kuhn and Damien Carl have had sort of done some work saying that there is this informal accord, right, the tacit agreement of the unions to support the Labor Party in power regardless of whether it implemented the accord and regardless of what it did with policy, privatisations, etc., means that um, it didn't really matter if the accord was introduced because they were always going to support a Labor Party over a Liberal Party and the unions were not going to push back um, in, in terms of neoliberalism. But I think that that is in one sense true, right, absolutely. In another sense, it misses the point. Neoliberalism internationally was about the suppression of wages to solve the economic crisis in the interests of capital. 
central to the accord is the suppression of wages and suppression of industrial action. It's not just some informal agreement between the Labor Party and the trade unions that he allows the accord and neoliberalism to be implemented simultaneously. It's the fact that the the accord is the vehicle for neoliberalism in Australia. And I think until, until people like Swan and Batam understand that, right, that the social contract was the vehicle here, In the US, you have um, Reagan uh, doing a set-piece battle with the airline traffic controllers, PATCO. You have Thatcher lining up against um, the militant miners' organisation in an effort to try and win those battles in order to curb industrial action in those countries. And in New Zealand, you have a confrontational approach as well. Australian Labor Party there directly confronts the unions in order to break union strength. Mm. I think the way to think about the accord is they want to break union strength because they want to be able to suppress wages and shift the economic circumstances. It's just they do it through a consensual uh, agreement. And in fact, you know, Thatcher, the Australian Australian Labor Party suppresses wages and industrial action much better than Thatcher in a lot of ways. And uh, particularly also if we understand wages... Um, as a kind of baram- barometer of class power as well, that you know the suppression of wages is the suppression of the power of of the class to exert its influence in the point of production across society. So, like the the defeat of wages growth is a defeat of the class, and to my mind, it's like a it's an epoch one, it's a generational one where the time before the accord and the time after the accord seems pr- profoundly different. And comrades that you know that were involved in struggles before the Accord uh, have a radically different worldview than people that came after it because it's almost like they inhabit two different um, organisations or constellations of capital. I absolutely mm. agree on that. If this, The context of Australian industrial relations, for all its problems, right, and maybe centralised arbitration did create dependent unions, I think that that's possibly um, true, but there were two things that happened. The level of the male wage was a barometer of class struggle and was a barometer of the ability of the working class to impose um, impose itself on, um, on the divide-up of the economic pie. But also centralised arbitration did allow strong unions to go in and fight, particularly the metal workers but also others, win, win wage increases and condition increases and have them to flow on to the entire workforce. Mm. That's really important, that level of solidarity built into that system for all the faults of centralised arbitration. Mm. We then have the accord period that, first of all, deepens corporatism and that the corporatism that's inbuilt into that arbitration system, drawing the working class and the trade unions into these structures. At the same time, it implements neoliberalism and disrupts the key tenets of the accord, i.e. that it's going that wages are the most important thing over the social wage and that that solidarity that's built into the system is key. So we come out of the other end with people saying it doesn't really matter that wages have gone down, we've got these other social wage gains. And just as you point, Dave, out, that's really problematic. But the other thing is that solidarity between the class is broken. Mm. No longer can we have the strongest workers fight for gains that are going to benefit the poorest workers or the least well-organised workers. 
everybody's on their own. So we get, you know, and I think there's a great report called Shifting Risk by Mike Rafferty and another author, I can't remember her name, but the surname's you, Y-U, written for the ACTU, which talks about the changes that go on um, in the neoliberal era, not specifically about the accord, but saying that the breakdown of those class solidarities in Australia mean that there is this shift in wealth between the richest and the poorest, but there's also this shift within waged workers Mm. where the wealthiest workers and the least well-off start to pull apart. That's not accidental. It's not just because of global processes. It's because the Accord era breaks some fundamental fundamental sort of, I guess, uh, rules of how how the Australian system mm. um, has built up over a decade through all the problems. Which, which then accelerates. So, you know, when you do have, from what I could, there was a pretty interesting report about wages growth that's put out by the Productivity Commission, I think it's in about 2013, and it looks at the wages growth that happens over the mining period, which I think was real, but what it shows also is the, the, the growth of the inequality in wages growth in the class yes, as well. Yes, yes. And there's a fantastic graph in it that kind of tracks it you know, historically, where the highs and lows of wages were much closer together, but by now that they're just going in different tangents, and it's left us this real problem, which is the heterogeneous and, and in in levels of inequality within the working class. Which means, you know, how do you compose those different pieces together? How do you have struggle now when you don't have that kind of unifying image and experience as you might have had in the past? Mm. And people made, sorry, John, people made that point about the Accord as well, like a 3% or 5% or 7% increase on $30,000 is quite different to $50,000. Yeah. So yeah. by the Accord freezing wages, it froze those differentials. So women, people in non-English speaking backgrounds, anybody who was earning less at the start was earning, um, it, it pulled, it, it made those differentials worse by the end. Wow. and. So I think some of those problems with the Accord are just simply not recognised in the sort of way it's presented now. Um, And, you know, I always find it really frustrating because, like, I grew up in a working-class family in that period. I know how tough it was. And the way that, that people talk about it is as if, you know, we all had to pull in our belts, but we're talking people losing their homes. That 1991 recession was absolutely horrific, the worst since the Great Depression. And people um, look back on it and with a kind of, in, a, in the kind of way that Keating does, where it was kind of just inevitable. Um, a necessary than, correction. Absolutely. Yeah. Rather than the class had been broken over 18 years. So if there was going to be any fight against the way that the government um, responded to that election, uh, sorry, to that recession and the sort of uh, social protections it put in place were just less possible um, than they were in 1983. Look, there's some other stuff I'd really like to um, hear about. I guess, you know, you you said before the opposition to the accord was marginal when it developed, but was there another possibility? Was there a, a genuine... Like, was anyone attempting to develop something that could respond to the crisis in a way that pointed out of capitalism or that discussion just wasn't happening? 
I think Jonathan Strauss wrote a PhD on the left's um, resistance to the accord, and I think that's by far the most comprehensive look at what the anti-accord forces, so to speak, were doing. Um, but I think that the biggest problem is there was not an alternate strategy um, and nor were those forces strong enough to um, cohere one. Because mm. there's kind of like a the Euro-communist stream and the Communist Party at the time who would have been, and they were the dominant force, as I understand it, yeah? Uh well, yes, like, the, like, yeah, there had been the turn away from, um, you know, it's not the Communist Party in the sense of Stalinist, but, and there were no, splits, like sorry. the Socialist Party splits off from the Communist Party over the Accord, but they're the weaker, they're the weaker sibling by far. Yeah, certainly. So there's really no, like, yeah, like the, the big radical left alternative party, you know, like the CPA itself is like two or 3,000 members at this time, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. So yes. they're weighted no really by the group. unions they control, mm. rather than yeah, as a dependent totally. force. Mm. Yeah. But you, and then you have groups like the BLF with Norm Gallagher in yeah, crisis yeah, yeah. over his involvement. They're both against the accord, but they, they are against the accord, and they have not signed up for it. Sometimes they're critical of it, but they don't really mobilise forces against it. And even like in the early days, the way the AMWU talks about the accord internally is if they don't do what they say they're going to do, we will force them to do it. But yeah. actually they never realise that. Mm. There's no, there's no um, seeing that through. And e even a, a few times like early on, they send a bunch of their members to, you know, the commission when a case is being heard, but it's pretty much... Theatre, and I'm sure there were some hard arguments between trade union officials and ACTU officials and the Labor Party over uh, various aspects of the accord. But it's not really until Halfpenny threatens to um, break the accord that you see anything vaguely even resembling the sort of um, a, a sort of independent view. Um, of what the trade union should do within the accord process. It is the ACTU with the Labor Party um, and there is no independent union project um, through the accord period, really. Like, really fascinating because, sorry, Dave. No, you go, go for it. Talk about the enterprise bargaining. Could we argue maybe in this weird way that enterprise bargaining is like a left project and that it actually seeks to provide like a way of doing what the award system used to be able to do? As you say, because it allowed for you to actually just patent bargain in a way, right? Like the yeah. enterprise bargaining was maybe a way of breaking with the accord. I don't know. Is that crazy or is there some truth in that? Um, no, I think it's true in that um, the <laughs> definitely the introduction of enterprise bargaining is a way to deal with the internal antagonisms of the accord and the fact that there are a bunch of um, sections of the trade union who are fed up with it. But they're fed yeah. up privately, right? They're not fed yeah. up publicly and they're not fighting for better terms within the accord. And, you know, this is like the early 90s um, by this point. Um, it's, it's really... The way they sort of see it is as a way out, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
um, it, it's their only option left. And I think you can't um, – there's an author called Briggs, he's not exactly some <laughs> radical, um, who I think has done the best research on what happened with enterprise bargaining. Um, yeah. And, yeah, but, like, the crazy thing is, like, the Campbell report that comes out at the end of the Fraser government in 1979 and sets out a kind of neoliberal direction for Australia, and then you get, like, the Hancock um, review of yeah. arbitration in mm. 85 or whatever it is, about enterprise bargaining, all these kind of seminal reports with neoliberal kind of ideas that are around in those in the 70s and early 80s. By the end of that ALP government, they've all been implemented. And in fact, like uh, I think it's John Quiggan who says it, the Labor Party actually goes further than what um, that than what Campbell's even asking the phrase of the government to do. And I think the other thing. The other reason the accord's important is Fraser is in such confrontation with the trade unions, partly because, you know, the way he came to power um, in an administrative coup against Whitlam, he's not able to cohere a new project to restructure the Australian economy. It actually takes the unions and the Labor Party to create that hegemonic project to restructure the economy. The accord is absolutely central to that restructuring, not just... Um, not because just because it gets the unions out of the way, but because they actually need this vanguard period where they do this radical restructuring and the unions are there with the Labor Party doing it. Hmm. Like the thing that really strikes me is that, you know, this happens in 983. So you've just, like, we've, what we have before that is, I guess, you know, a decade of struggle. Arguably some of these struggles have led perhaps to an element of what has caused the crisis of capital. But is, they don't, these struggles don't seem to have been able to produce some kind of force that then allowed an intervention. Like the new, the new left couldn't act in this period in any way that seemed meaningful. Or, or the new social movements. Of course, I guess, you know, you've had the rise in environmentalism and second-wave feminism. You know, they, they don't seem to have in what you're presenting this kind of like a real social force that could intervene in that moment. And that, for me, is kind of really fascinating and quite quite sobering as well. Mm. Well, the movements at that time weren't interested in those kind of demands in a way. Like, one of the big movements of the 80s is the anti-nuclear movement. It's the anti um MX bases in 83, the MX missiles. Um, so there's a whole lot of campaigns that are being run, but they're not, they are like new, new social movements in so a way, you know? There's got to be some so intersection, that right? 70s like, kind of you know, like, an, like anecdotally, like I understand that period of the 80s to be one where there is quite a, a serious amount of intersection between like peace, environmental movement and yeah. trade union struggles where it's often the same yeah. people. Aboriginal land rights. Versus, yeah, and, and land rights where it's often well. the same people yeah. that are involved in all these kind of yeah. uh, campaigns. So it's interesting that those kind of rising struggles don't express themselves in a way as the economy is being profoundly reshaped. Well, I guess, and John would know more than me, but... I'd always understood that the sort of position that had been put by Anna Yateman and other, others about Femocrats goes some way to explaining how the radicalism of the women's movement and feminist movement of the 1970s gets integrated into the Hawke-Keating era. And similarly, there's a real increase of funding for environmental organisations 
um, by the Hawke Keating government. Like those movements are successful in the 70s. They actually win a social space and win an argument that there's a need to deal with certain issues. And a good amount of funding comes flowing from the um, Hawke Keating governments to those organisations. And I do think they get incorporated into um, the state project um, in that way. But John's right. There's, it may be true that there is some crossover between these movements, but it doesn't seem to me that with an organisation like the AMWU that there's much evidence that there was um, close, um, close involvement in the women's movement of the new left or the environmental movement um, writ large from looking at the archives, the key thing that they are involved in is um, issues around uranium, including mm-hmm. arguing to their own members why they're opposed to uranium mines because they do represent wor- some of the workers in uranium mines. But I, I don't know. Is there as much crossover as we think back then? I don't think we can read it off what we know better, i.e. the 90s, when the mm-hmm. left is much smaller um, I'd be I'd be surprised if there was as much crossover then than than there is now. It's interesting. Mm. Liz, is there anything we haven't asked you about that you really think is important to understanding uh, <laughs> this period, or you want to like put in some extra jabs at Swan and Badham? No, no. I think like <laughs> I did write a hundred thousand words, so I could talk <laughs> yeah. forever. Look, it's it's um, it's fast. I find it. I'm really glad you did this work, and I find it fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> you're very lovely, Joe. Um, I've, I've got one little quote here, maybe if we want to to talk about it. But do you have anything else to say, Liz? Before I no, put no, in this I last thing think, to talk about. Sorry? I think that the difficult thing with some some of these articles that are being printed is that it, they are half right, and in yeah. that sense, they do play to some of the things people people think, but dressed up in a whole lot of inaccuracy. So another thing about Vanessa's article is she talks about these great increases in social expenditure, etc. Yeah, totally. Now, yeah. it is <laughs> true. Wouldn't there was that, yeah. an increase in social expenditure, <laughs> but it was less than the increase under Fraser and less than the increase yeah. under under Howard. That's my right? So there's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of um, mythology about about um, what happened in that era. But some of what um, what Vanessa says is correct, right, that they did implement neoliberalism, right, she's correct yeah. against yeah. Swan. Um, I'll tell you one amazing thing is at the end of the night, after the 1996 election, the New South Wales Party and the National Party and presumably the other state branch of the Labor Party, surveyed and did research about why they lost the election. And the report to the New South Wales branch and the national branch says, well, basically we privatised things and did a bunch of other reforms and people didn't like them. And in one of those reports, it almost literally says, we just haven't done a good enough job of explaining to people why this is the right way to go. And I think very little has moved on from there that we're still articles in newspapers trying to say to people, you thought neoliberalism was bad? Well, it wasn't really neoliberalism or it wasn't really as bad as you thought or you just have to compare it to something worse. Or you're a right? moron, yes. right? Like, is, is, yeah. like that, that's the, the gen- I, I think that's, that's quite, quite interesting about the, the fact that this debate between Batam and, and Swan is happening in The Guardian, right? And it's not actually happening in some kind of 
Labour Party forum because I don't even know if they exist anymore. You know, I'm that, not sure. That, that, like, well, who reads The Guardian? Maybe like 30,000, I don't know. I don't know what their readership is, but it's a small amount of people who are either in the political class or are vaguely interested in what the political class does. Yeah. You know, like, the fact that this debate is happening there says something about the level of atrification and the distance of this debate from ordinary people, right? Absolutely. There's yep. only 13 or 14% of people members of trade unions. And yet, often what we see the ACTU saying is, oh, look, that's true, but awards cover like this many workers and therefore that shows you how well protected they really are. Mm. Really, density is higher because lots of people are under awards. Their misunderstanding about what trade union membership is in that, that voluntary agreement to be part of a collective organisation just shows you that their, their frame of mind um, over the last sort of decade has been so confused, and academics do it too. They will argue that the trade union movement is as strong as it used to be because there is greater cooperation between trade unions, is one of the arguments put by some academics, and because the Work Choices campaign shows that you can win on a national issue and it was highly organised and involved a lot of people. At the same time, they're staring at the same figures we're staring at that say to them they need a seismic shift in how they are thinking about um, organising working people in this country. And, you know, maybe Sally McManus will be part of the solution to the absolute malaise they've been in since 1996. We can only hope. Well, because it's like when people talk about, say, even the Work Choices campaign and the numbers mobilised, the quality of that mobilisation is radically different from what was before the accord. I have the same argument constantly with old comrades where they say, oh, you know, you just need to bring this up at your next mass delegates meeting. (laughs) And my response is, I can't remember the last time I was in a workplace that had a delegate, let alone had a mass meeting of them that happened like the world, like that, what it means to actually be a member or to be mobilised in that way is radically different. Like, I'm, yes. you know, I think... I guess that's what we're saying. There's been a quantitative change and a qualitative change in how the trade union movement um, is organised in Australia. And it's not to say there aren't a lot of people trying to fix that problem, but there have, we have to admit that the current trade unions... And what they've been able to achieve in the last few decades should give us absolute cause for concern. And, and but also I think I remember uh, seeing a, a talk that you did, uh, Liz, where you, you said, like, you know, we can't think that the majority of, of workers who aren't in unions are morons, right? Like they're, yeah. they're not joining because they've seen for themselves often the proof in the pudding about what contemporary unionism means. And it's just not worth it for them. I remember when I was working at Pizza Hut when I was 16, trying to convince people to join the SDA. (laughs) This is in 2005 or something, even earlier than that. Even then, these teenagers were like, union doesn't do anything for me. Why the hell would I join them? Yeah. And unions, like I think back to the sorts of things my father did in the workplace, right? And we're talking a closed shop in the oil refinery. But it was as much about everybody pitching in to cover mm. the shifts of someone whose partner had cancer for mm. a year as yeah. it was about winning um, things through the Stormont and Packers and later the NUW. Yeah. Now, that, th- those 
those sorts of things, the, you know, the fact that trade unions used to organise their retired workers as if they were still yeah. members of the union. It's terrible, terribly sad to say, but those days are gone. And mm. there is no going backwards to what we had before. There is only working towards a new, a new way to organise and be organised within um, the Australian working class. And I'm not saying that I even particularly have the answers. In the strikes campaigns that I've been involved in in the last few years, I've known at the start, we need to come out of this strike with an organised group of workers, whether they're inside the union or outside yeah. the union, and it gets to the end of that six-month or nine-month strike period and you think we are no better organised than we were at the start, even mm. though we may have won, won a series of good gains and people joined the union. Mm. I don't think there are any easy answers, but unless until we have an honest discussion about how the labour movement in Australia got into the state it's in, we actually can't move forward. Mm. There's two things I want to say. Kind of just um, the first thing is you know when you're talking about people like the, the person you're talking about, Dave, I think, was working in the private in the public sector. Sorry, and the public sector was not as affected by this in the '80s as much at all. Like except for in Queensland, where you know Sequeb happened and the Sequeb workers were smashed, but largely the public sector density stays really, really high well into the '90s, is my understanding. So there's one thing there where, you know, like that's also where the public sector mostly is now. There's one quote that I want to talk about because I think it really ties into this and it's from Swan's article. And he says, Labor once demanded its members pledge to the democratic socialization of industry, production, distribution and exchange the extent necessary to eliminate exploitation and other antisocial features in these fields. An activist membership of the Labor Party parentheses, would do well to hunt down some old party cards the pledge is yet printed on to reconsider just what these ancient words may mean. That's from Badham's article, isn't it? It's yeah, that's from Badham's article. Is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it is Badham's article. Yeah, but what does that mean? <laughs> like, what's she trying to say there? I, I think, no, I think, she, I, sorry, Liz, you go. No, no, I was going to say there is a lot of backwards looking, right? Yeah. The thing is, I think she sees it at the level of ideology, we need people who are in the Labor Party. We need people to join, right? People have been turned off and they're doing other things and they need to come back in, especially those dastardly Greens. Yes. We need them to know that neoliberalism is wrong and to choose a better type of politics. And in that way, we'll revise the, we will revive the Labor Party. But what has happened with mass politics internationally? An absolute fracturing of the social basis of all major parties virtually in every advanced capitalist country. They are writing these things as if we are still in the 1980s where it is possible to rebuild a mass basis to a party that doesn't have, have weight in the class anymore. That's what characterises labourism. And I think she misses, she misses that. The density is not just about people being in favour of trade unions. It's about the fact that the trade unions have strength because they have that mass social weight. I, I think also as well that Batam's making the argument that the Labor Party has been a vehicle for the transcendence of capitalism that has sometimes lost its way. You know, Quite I, I, I think thinks, and I think that's actually. A, even if that people are thinking only on the level of ideology, that is actually a deep mystification in a sizable section of people who are in the class that are looking for a way out of capitalism that constantly 
contributes in part, in a small part, to us getting screwed over. This kind of belief that somewhere in the project of Australian labourism is a transcendence of capital rather than the management of labour within capital. Whether people think it was a lost past that, you know, was great, achieved by, you know, closest we got was Whitlam, then Hawke took it the wrong way, or whether they think it's always there, it's a constantly running myth. And I think, you know, like, I think Sally McManus seems like a genuinely um, honest individual with um, more impressive than, than any ACT new leader that I've seen for ages, yeah. but it's still, you know, when you look at the actual arguments that she makes or the arguments she made in Mayday in Brisbane, it's still a vision that is within the world of labourism and arbitration. You know, like her, her critique made at Mayday of the rich, you know, um, was all framed within that they are breaking the rules, that, you know, mm. it's it's wage theft and they're not paying their taxes. That They need to return. What we need to do is corral these people back into the legal um, management of the capital labour relation. And I think yeah. people see that in some ways as, you know, if only we get more taxation, you know, if only we can, you know, can we protect people through wages, we're stepping towards a world of vision outside of capitalism. And that's that's just wrong. It's fascinating because it's under Hawke that you really start to see a massive divergence in wealth disparity in Australia, right? Mm-hmm. You see the emergence of the like you know the multi billionaires for the first time, you know. So it's it's fascinating that you know like the, at the same time as contemporary Labor talks about corralling people back into the legal mechanism, but it was the Hawke Labor government which they valorised, of mm-hmm. course, that first broke that dynamic. It first oh, yeah. allowed and encouraged the growth of the, 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 the plutocratic class in Australia, which previously had been very minimal because mm. we were such a closed economy. Yeah. And it's a, like I think the one of the big educations for me in doing the PhD was reading the AMWU files from the 70s from well before the Accord to try and get a sense of how their arguments change. But there was this tape at the archives of... Um, a manufacturing conference in Canberra and they were sort of talking about um, what sort of general economic position um, they would hold and the way they would talk about it is that we have to ask what is profit for, right? What is the purpose of profit and is it okay that it is that, that the wealth that's generated is used to enrich individuals or do we want society to run in a different way? These are arguments you do not hear in mainstream trade un- left trade unions Indeed. today. No. And so there's a and you know there was a letter signed by a range of MPs in the late 70s that read like a socialist platform. Mm. Now still reformist, but I think the the thing is things have been so dulled inside the Labor Party and the trade unions that all you're left with is that quote from Vanessa. Mm, Like that actually I think what what she's trying to say to other reformists is not she might deny that she's a reformist, is that actually (laughs) get back to some of those more radical ideas about what the socialisation of wealth uh, would be. And even though that's not my politics, like, I would dearly love the trade unions to throw themselves wholeheartedly into debates about what the socialisation of wealth look like because then we'd be having a debate about why are taxes redistributed amongst wage earners rather than redistributed from profits to wages. Um, And 
that's that's the more interesting discussion to have rather than let's tax the 1%. Mm. And the abolition of the value form. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can leave. <laughs> I, need, I need a lot more time to do art than, <laughs> than I currently have. Well, I, th- I think there is probably something that's also like in terms of our current moment, there's a parallel conversation where people are having this debate about, um, you know, modern monetary theory and a jobs guarantee versus a universal basic income as if these are policies that, that are about to be realised. Oh, yeah, you know? it's very popular, the UBI. It's the solution to everything. It's the solution to <laughs> automation. It's the solution to unemployment. It's the solution to inequality. Um, and sexism I think, well. Yeah. yeah. But, but also there's this, because I know, um, I know Badham is a supporter, is an opponent of the UBI and is a supporter of modern monetary theory and a jobs guarantee. Like, I, I think, you know, both these things could have been theoretically thought of as demands that emerge from movements um, and impose them on capital as a step as part of the struggle. But what's really interesting is that they're being, de- like, there's a debate going on about them as if, like a, a Labor government elected tomorrow would go, ooh, that's a smart policy, we'll introduce yeah. this. You know, yeah. like it's, it's so the, these kind of attempts to look back and think about, you know, what the Hawke-Keating government's, what people want it to be, and at the same time have these debates as if there's some kind of magic policy that can be applied tomorrow. I think that they're, they're part of a similar kind of... Um, Absolutely. You know, like, it, obviously, in the both in the lead-up and then during the accord, there was a lot of visits to Sweden and various other Nordic countries Mm. um, as to how it's not possible to restructure the state and the systems in Australia to model something. Like, it's silly to think you can model one country on another in that sense, given they're actually structurally different um, formations. But there was a lot of idealising the Nordic countries. And... I do think people think because Finland's got a trial of the UBI that somehow it it could be around the corner um, in well, Australia. Mark Zuckerberg said he supports it or um, Elon Musk. God help us. <laughs> we actually... Um, Friends like that. <laughs> we, we have been asked by our listeners to do a proper show on the UBI, so we should do that soon, John. Yes, but Liz, we will. Th- thank you for um, donating so much of your time to this really... Fa- I found a really fascinating interview. Anything that we've missed... Last opportunity. I'm um, fairly sure I've talked a lot. Is there anything John has to say? I feel like he really got about three words in. No, no, no. I'm, I'm very happy to take the back seat on this one. I think it's been really fascinating. And he's like a perspective that's sorely needed in the whole like valorizing of Hawking and weirdly also Keating in I, this whole debate. I, I would like, like to ask Liz for a, a final thought, though, because I, you know, when I first read about the Accord and the like, and, and I was in a, a similar. Uh, Cliffite organisation that Liz spent some time in, every article would finish with, and this is why we need a socialist party. And I don't want to think that our podcast has a similar, like, ending. Do you think there is, though, however, some real political lessons that you have learnt from coming out of your study into the Accord that, you know, we should learn too? I think that... Studying this in sort of a period where I've always been a member of a trade union, but I never had to go on strike until I was a member of the academics union while I was writing this this accord. So I guess I did think a lot about 
what is the way forward for the trade unions and what's the lessons out of the accord? Obviously, one lesson is don't sign social contracts. They never work out. <laughs> but I think the other one is that we have to stop the backward looking, that thankfully the success of any class project is not dependent on the left and how moribund it is. The class can only organise itself. And potentially, and maybe this is a controversial thing and maybe can talk about it on another show, is if only 13% are members of trade unions, then maybe the organising we need to do is not inside trade unions but in amongst workers more generally. It's not, it is a problem that they're not a member but I also think they're not to blame. And so I think for me thinking about how to actually organise in a period rather than simply can we recruit more people to trade unions who have not been successful in um, reversing their own fate, uh, fate is pretty central. I think, I think that's a brilliant point. Now, I can't imagine anyone has listened to this and not wanted to read your work. Is there going to be an opportunity? There will be a book. Um, Yay! Then there'll be a paperback <laughs> of the book, which will be a full book. better, yes. <laughs> There's a bunch of things on um, for free on an integral state, including the sort of core arguments and um, the PhD is available, but only if you're a staff or student of Sydney Uni. Or no one, hey. And you may <laughs> or may not have a uh, chapter forthcoming in a certain energy collection oh, on the uh, yeah. Australian far left since 1945, which may or may not be edited by someone. Also appearing on this podcast. <laughs> John, do you have a book coming out as well? <laughs> well, Dave, now that you are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a the key argument about, I guess, the relationship between corporatism and neoliberalism. There's an article in Critical Sociology I wrote with Damien Carl looking at yeah, brilliant. sort of, yeah. uh, and that's sort of fairly freely available, I believe. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Liz. That's been really, really fascinating. Thank you.
fashion. 